afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you all. For those who don't know, my name's Ephraim. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a blessing to be sharing the word with you this afternoon. Um, I thank God for his goodness to us and just for what he's doing among us. Um, and it's a blessing to see everyone, many visitors. It's good to have you with us. Um, as a church, we um, have a practice of um, teaching through the scriptures. Um, some would call that expositional um, Bible teaching. And so that basically means that we just try and look at the Bible for what it says in its context. And we just take our time and go through it in that way. Um, and so with that, we are currently going through a series in the Beatitudes. And um, that's found in Matthew chapter 5. And I, I almost felt as though I wanted to change the title of today's message with all of the, the focus on health and fitness that there seems to be among us. Um, I, f I almost feel like I'm, I'm being um, sinful in, in stating this title, Eat, Drink, and Be Merry. So, um, there are a number of us who are getting older and are very aware of that, and are, <laughs> are having to take our diet in hand. And um, if you have spent any time with Pastor Rob and inquired as to how it is he has so seemingly effortlessly lost so much weight and is looking so trim in his 50s, I might add, um, you would, I'm sure, have, have been... Um, enlightened on the wonders of intermittent fasting, as I have, and I'm trying. <laughs> Does it really? Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. God is good. And um, food is such a big part of culture, any culture, and yet um, it also kind of comes to symbolize a sense of our spiritual reality. And so this notion of eat, drink, and be merry is a a euphemism that is sometimes translated as YOLO, you only live once, so just do it for the gram, um, do whatever you're doing, go hard or go home, this kind of sense of, you know what, we've just got now, make the most of now, enjoy now, and, and get everything you can, and can everything you get, and sit on the can, and don't let nobody near it. And yet, we appreciate that there's more to our lives than this. We appreciate that actually... We do these things only to find that we do it again and we keep repeating because there's this incessant need. Will that incessant need ever be satisfied? Is there a sense in which we can truly eat, drink, and really be merry? You see, Jesus declares that there is. When he said, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. And so this is our text today. And um, I'll read the surrounding text just as we um, get stuck in and then I'll pray. Reading from Matthew chapter 5 um, in the ESV. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth and consistency of your word to us. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us of, of, an, of another life, of another world, of another reality in contrast to that which we experience on a daily basis. And we're grateful, Lord, because we long for this. We long for this reality, even when we don't realize it, even when we don't know it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to recognize and understand the difference between the two, the reality that you offer in contrast to the reality that we experience. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to step out in faith and experience that which you have for us, that which you made us for. And so, Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It sounds very countercultural, although everyone is hungering and thirsting for something. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, we're told that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And the reality is that in view of that, we are constantly seeking, we are constantly pursuing, we are constantly hungering for more. And there is no doubt that in the main... We just try and fulfill that satisfaction with those things that come easiest to us or those things that are most pleasurable or agreeable to us. And in life, people go through um, their time doing these things, whether it's relationships and, you know, putting all of their expectations and desires um, in one person, only to find that the person fails them, and then they are left again wondering, where is this satisfaction going to come from? Money, career pursuits, power, respect, status, and yet none of these things satisfy And yet these are the things that the world would tell us are the things we ought to pursue. 
I mean, in none of the examples that I've given would we say that they are fundamentally wrong. To pursue a career, is that fundamentally wrong? To have a relationship, a committed monogamous relationship, is that fundamentally wrong? To seek self-sufficiency and just the, the, the power to choose and, and take care of yourself, is that fundamentally wrong? And yet they don't provide, they don't deliver what we long for. Jesus said this in the following chapter. Um, from that which we're looking at, Matthew 6, verse 33, a verse that many of us are familiar with. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so the desire for clothing, for food, for shelter and comfort, um, is it Maslow's hierarchy of needs? And it talks about the basic necessities of every human being. We see Jesus speaking on this before Maslow, right? And we see that there's truth in these things. We have fundamental needs. But Jesus here establishes that which is our primary need, the priority in all of our seeking. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It resonates with our verse. Blessed, happy, to be envied are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so part of the reason that there is this ongoing dissatisfaction and this ongoing longing that is never satisfied is because actually are we looking for the right things? Are we looking in the right place for satisfaction? I think it was, um, what's my man's name? I can't get no satisfaction. Rolling Stones, no, the, what was the brother who sung it? All I can see is his lips in my mind. Mick Jagger, that's right. Mick Jagger. Well, that's what he was quiet. That was his kind of thing. That was his, that was his hallmark, innit? Can't get no And that's, that's the, the cry of a generation. I can't get no satisfaction. Are we looking in the right place? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, we have to consider what is righteousness because fundamentally, everybody has their own definition of what is right. And in view of that, they will act accordingly. They will pursue that. Now, over the generations, we've seen a, a, a I was going to say progression. You could probably say a regression or a digression from what true righteousness is. And so, in one season of life, people recognized and appreciated that there was such thing as absolute truth. Um, they recognized, and speaking in, in, the, in the framework of Western thinking and Western society, the, the Bible was 
the place that people look to for truth and that they recognize to be absolute truth. Truth is that which God says it is. Verses like John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, says the Lord Jesus Christ, who never lies. And so there's a clear sense that God's word is truth. And there was a time at which people understood and appreciated that and embraced that as much as they embraced a biblical worldview. We see similar sentiment communicated back in the Psalms. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. But then there was a, a departing from that to what became known as relativism, where people no longer held the Bible to be true, but then began to embrace truth in other systems of belief, in other schools of thought, whether that was in other major religions or in science or in humanism. But rather than saying that actually there is one source of absolute truth, people then began to say actually there's truth in A or truth in B or truth in C, and that's where truth can be found. And actually, it, it got to the point where there's truth in all of them. You can just mix and blend. Take from here, take from there, take from there, and, and that pro progressed to what became known as hyper-relativism where people weren't just looking to the Bible for truth or looking to a particular code or system or ideology for truth. But actually, truth was found one place. Whatever's true for you is true for you, and whatever's true for me is true for me. And so this notion that there is no absolute truth has become so much more common, even just at, at the back of people's minds. It's not something that people necessarily think about. But generally, if you say the Bible is true, they'll say that's good for you. And many will say, I don't believe in absolute truth. I don't believe there is such thing as absolute truth. Not realizing the contradiction in that statement. Because all you have to do is ask them, do you believe your statement is absolutely true? <laughs> that in and of itself will expose the flaw in the thinking. But people get to a place where what's true for me is good for me. And actually, people carry on like this is a, you know, a really modern phenomena. Um, this is postmodernism or post-postmodernism or the millennial mindset and da-da-da-da-da. Listen, this was real in the Bible. As Scripture says, there's nothing new under the sun. We see in the book of Judges this sentiment that's communicated five or six times in the book of Judges. 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's fundamentally that, that notion of you just do what, what feels good to you. You do what's right for you, what works for you. And so whereas the principle of Scripture once governed our codes and of conduct and our moral reference, that got cast aside for the individualism or the cult of individualism. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, it's needless to say that we are not going to find satisfaction in life if everybody does what works for them, what is right for them. Because, again, quite simply, there are going to be those times when, obviously, What's right for me isn't right for you. And it's going to result in conflict. And so there has to be a, a, a point of reference at which we can recognize that there is a right that we all subscribe to in such a way that it unifies and harmonizes us. We see this presented in the Word of God. Righteousness is not God's endorsement of what I think is right. It is God's right. It is what He says is right. And in that, we have a fundamental point of reference by one who is authorized to establish it. See, one of the reasons we can be so resistant to other people's ideas of right and wrong is because it's their ideas. And for whatever reason, we don't relate to them. Or we, don't, we don't subscribe to their view. And so I'm not going to take that on board. And the reality is we don't have to. People can think whatever they like. It's helpful to remember that when someone has a very low opinion of you. So, you have a low opinion of me. Well, I mean, as a, as a healthy Christian, I might reflect on that. But we can't allow people's opinions of us to dictate our sense of worth and value. It's not other people's opinions of us that define who we are. It's God's view of us. Why? Because his view is higher. And so we understand that God's right is right. And in that we find harmony and we find unity and we find broad scope of expression in our diversity. And yet we move as one. Now, you would think that, okay, in view of that, the church is a place where everybody just falls in and functions together. And, and it's just a glorious place without any kind of ism or schism. Without any kind of issue or conflict.
And the answer is no and yes. Because we don't experience that. But that is what is promised to us in an ultimate sense. And we do see glimpses of it. And we do experience it maybe more than people do in the world. You know that so, so often as Christians, right, we complain so much about our brothers and sisters. And yet we forget where we're coming from. And we, and we forget what it was really like in the world when, when we was in school and that person that we really thought was our friend was actually plotting behind our back. And when we were in, in college and that person was plagiarizing our work <laughs> while smiling in our face. And you go into the workplace and that promotion that you told the, your colleague about, you never got because they took your ideas and went and got the promotion from under your feet. See, we're not perfect as believers, but at least we're honest about the fact that we're not perfect. That's just fundamental to coming to Christ. I'm a sinner. And I need, I need redemption, I need saving, I need changing, I need help. And so you know where you stand with your fellow believers. They might not be perfect. But you know what? At least we're real about our weaknesses. And yet we experience such cloaks and walls of pride. And we forget what that feels like to be on the outside of that. So... We don't experience the, 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 the sense of a perfected unity. But we have a unity that is deeper than our preferences. It's deeper than our own choices. It's a unity that has been purchased by the blood of Christ. And yet we see that... This verse here was spoken of those who were following God. And this is so often true today. Even for those of us who have submitted to Christ and are committed to following him. We've accepted the fact that, as God said in Christ in Matthew 4.4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we say amen and we say yes. And yet, we still don't get the satisfaction of feeling like righteousness is really being played out among us in a harmonious way. And we still get these relational conflicts. And often it's not because God's word is at question, but it's because we have taken on the individualistic mindset of the world as we relate to God's word. We take on this sense of, well, it means to me what it means to me. And so we will look at scripture and we will redefine what it means. My interpretation is, but hold on. The Bible clearly says you shouldn't get divorced. Well, my interpretation is, what I see that to mean is, 
And so we find ourselves back in a place where it's defined by our view and what sits well with us. Sometimes we, 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 we dress that up in Christian terms. I feel like the Lord is leading me. But the, but the Bible says you shouldn't be unequally yoked. But you know what? God showed me in a dream. God told me. Oh, how did God tell you? Was it an audible voice? That's not important. God told me. And we use these terms to personalize and individualize the way in which we understand and obey Scripture. There's no doubt that sometimes Scripture is something that is it's hard to wrestle with, it's hard to work with. But the basic things are pretty plain and straightforward, if we're honest. These verses are really key verses, and, and I'd, I'd commend them to you to, to note, to highlight, to reference, even to commit to memory. When it comes to the Bible, it's not subject to any personal or private interpretation. Here we see the Apostle Peter speaking on this in 2 Peter 1, verses 19 and 20. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not based on how I see it and you can see it how you see it. The true interpretation of Scripture is, what did it mean to the people who first received it? Because that's how we know what it means. And sometimes we've got to do a bit of work to try and appreciate that. And that's why Paul said to Timothy, study, be diligent, work hard to show yourself approved unto God. A workman who doesn't need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. But it, so it might not come easy, but there's a clear sense in which God is saying something. And not only is, is the, the necessity for us to, to look at closely at what God is saying, but we have to consider that in the context of all that he says in Scripture. So we have this a whole debate about same-sex relationships and you have those who are Christians saying, well, it's permissible and it's okay according to Scripture as long as you love one another because this is the greatest of the commandments, right? Oh, but in, in I mean, you go back to Leviticus and it tells you clearly that same-sex relationships are are off limits and out of bounds. 
Yeah, and it also tells you that you can't eat shellfish and you mustn't cut your beard. That's always the response. So, okay, so let's, let's ensure that we're considering everything that God has said and not just that little bit. In the New Testament, on multiple occasions, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, the same sentiment is being expressed in the New Testament. And so there are some aspects of the Old Testament we understand have been fulfilled by Christ and discontinued. And yet there are some aspects that are stated by the New Testament as being con continuous expectations and standards. No one's going to say, well, the Old Testament said you, you shouldn't eat shellfish and we eat prawns, so therefore I'm allowed to murder my neighbor from the same law. We still understand murder to be wrong from old to new. There's continuity. The greatest commentary on Scripture is Scripture itself. We must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And when we see the New Testament restate and reaffirm something from the Old Testament, then we have an understanding that there's continu continuity there. But people will use all kinds of interpretive gymnastics to, to try and justify their own desires. Some will use church tradition even. Well, in my church, this is how we... It's important that we're mindful of the teaching of the church that have gone before us, being the people of God and their experience of God. But even their teaching is not above and beyond of the, and in greater authority than the Scriptures. Anything and everything must be submitted to the Scripture. It must be filtered by and scrutinized according to the Scriptures. And where we don't understand, it's better we just say, look, I don't get it. Not quite there yet. And we seek further understanding. And so in this, we're able to come to a place where on a day-to-day on a -day basis, we're able to appreciate and understand what is righteousness. Consider this. A lot of the struggles that we go through in understanding the word can be helped if we appreciate that this is a very helpful and faithful process through which to filter what we're trying to get to grips with in God's Word. What's right in the sight of God? Well, there are some things that the Bible directly promotes. The Bible directly promotes that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible directly promotes that we um, be baptized upon believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, etc., etc. There are things that are directly promoted. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. The one another's of the New Testament, over 30 of them, one for every day of the month. Love one another, care for one another, pray for one another. I mean, all of these things are the things that the Scriptures promote. 
there are certain things that the Scripture explicitly prevents. We see this in the commandments and other such texts. Things that are directly prevented. So you should not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. It's explicit. Don't do it. There are some things that are not so clear cut. And we have to look to according to principle. And it might require a little bit of clarification. And although the scripture doesn't speak to it directly, it does in principle. And so you might look at that and say, hmm, what would be uh, an, an example of that? Well, I'm sure when you got up today to put on your clothes, you didn't look in the Bible to determine what you should pick from your wardrobe. In fact, when you went shopping for your clothes online or otherwise, I'm sure you didn't reference scripture to determine what clothes you should buy and where you should buy them from. But nonetheless, you, I'm sure, were subconsciously guided by certain principles of Scripture. So you know that as believers, we should be modest in the way that we present ourselves. Not seductive, enticing, not showing off and being bossy, as they say. That's paraphrase. <laughs> and so with that, those values, based on the principles of Scripture directed and kind of governed the way you navigated your shopping excursion. I said shopping excursion, not whipping excursion. Okay, just to be clear. And so you see how principles of Scripture can then begin to define how we function in righteousness on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet there are some things that Scripture just don't really speak on at all. And you have a choice. And so, believe it or not, when it comes to who you should marry, within the, that which the Bible promotes, that which it prevents, and according to principles, you then arrive at a place that actually you're permitted to consider to, you can marry who you want to marry within the first three steps. Now, you, you say, no, nah, Pastor E, because you have to fast and pray and have a revelation from God before you determine who. It's not about you're permitted to choose whoever you want. God needs to tell you. I think that is part of the problem, a big part of the problem, why we see so many people turn around and blame God about the problems in their marriage. Like Adam, the woman you gave me. And God's saying, but you, hold on, I say you called her flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone. I didn't tell you to say that. That was your choice, my brother. <laughs> Truly. See, the reality is that something such as marriage, we, we, feel, we feel like we don't want the burden of responsibility. Lord, you choose for me. 
<laughs> but Proverbs 18 says, he who finds a wife, who, who finds? God who gives a man a wife is given a good thing. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And so it's that sense of, okay, you have the choice. And so our prayer, we ought to pray and we ought to fast. But it's not that God will give us some revelation from heaven, some vision, some dream in which we'll see us, us potential spouse clothed in white and glowing and walking towards us with their arms open like Jesus. Uh-uh-uh. We just pray that God will give us the wisdom to choose wisely. To choose wisely. And that also includes not making a hasty choice. So God promotes marriage. It's not the ultimate in Christian experience. Paul as a single man said, I wish that you were like me. So we can't hold it up as that and treat single Christians like second class Christians. And he prevents us from being married to people of the same sex or who are unbelievers. And so within that, we understand, okay, what's promoted and what's prevented. How are we supposed to get married? Well, the Bible doesn't specify what a wedding should look like. You know that, right? Like what we experience is of tradition. And I know some of you have had to wrestle with that when it comes to how are we going to get married when we've got so many traditions in our heritage. And so you've got 10 weddings. <laughs> you've got your Nigerian traditional, you've got your Ghanaian traditional, you've got... And you're trying to please everyone. And you would just wish, Lord, why didn't you just say in the Bible, this is how you're meant to get married. And we just do the one wedding and that's it. But there are principles of Scripture as it relates to how. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Okay, so it's a, it's a, it's a public declaration of your commitment, commitment that has to be done before witnesses in a way that allows you to be held accountable before God. Principle. Now that could be done in so many different ways. And we see cultures across the world, they do it in so many different ways. But those principles are generally there where they're seeking to honor God. This notion of, listen, we don't need to get married, you know, we don't need to sign no piece of paper. Like, I just take this woman to myself and she's my boo, wifey. That's it. Have their own little private ceremony in the bedroom and that's it. Bible don't support that. Bible don't advocate that. Where's the accountability? Where's the witnesses? Where's the public commitment? But it also means, on the other hand, that you know what? If you want to get married and you want to go into a registry office and get married before witnesses, then no shame and no shade. No shame and no shade. Because it also fulfills another principle. Obey the law of the land, Romans 13. And in this country, that is regarded as a means by which you become legitimately married. Now, I appreciate that you are limited in a registry office context as to the extent to which you can acknowledge God 
And so for many, that's insufficient because they want to be able to pray and declare their commitment, not just before witnesses, but before the Lord. And sometimes that may be taken up in another ceremony or occasion after the registry office where fellow believers are gathered to witness that dedication unto the Lord. But when it comes to those three aspects being fulfilled, fundamentally, who should you marry? 1 Corinthians 7 says to the, to the widow, you are free to marry who you want in the Lord. This isn't a single seminar, by the way. I'm just using this to help understand these principles, these, these points that I'm making here. You're free to marry who you want only in the Lord. And so, to the person who was married and has been widowed, therefore, their former partner has died, and they are now released from their commitment to that person and are classed as single, just as any other single Christian, we see a principle that applies to the widow as it applies to any other single Christian. Because that's their status now. Actually, you're free to marry who you want, only in the Lord. There's the permission. And so as believers, as we're working through what is righteousness, what does that look like? We're able to keep these points in mind. How does the scripture, what does the scripture promote in, in relation to the issue? And wh where does it have preventions, pro prohibitions? What principles are there that govern the way I should be thinking about doing this thing? And as a result, what am I permitted to do? What choice do I have? And all the while we're doing so prayerfully, considering ourselves before the Lord. Considering Proverbs when it says, in, among many counselors, there's safety. Get advice from godly people if you're uncertain. And so in this, we get a handle uh, uh, and a help in terms of righteousness outworked. Now, righteousness outworked isn't the fundamental expression of righteousness that is being spoken of by Jesus. Righteous living, righteous actions, doing the right thing before God is not enough. See, righteousness fundamentally is first right standing with God before it is right living before God. Many people make the mistake of thinking, if I just do the right thing, that's all that matters. And it's a bit like, I've used the example before, somebody who is, hasn't got a driving license saying, as long as I drive really well, that's all that matters. Actually, it can't work like that. Because the reality is that our status is such that no matter how well we drive, we are in the wrong. 
some of you 17-year-olds under conviction right now thinking, ah, getting a license is long. I can drive really well. And so right standing with God is the thing that we must seek first of all. And that is the, 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 the object of our internal desire. That sense of eternity that's been placed in our hearts actually is, is, is there because God uses it to draw us to himself as he speaks to us by the Holy Spirit. And as he's using that sense of longing He's revealing himself to us as the answer to it in Christ Jesus. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, so who is the answer to the hunger and thirst for righteousness? Who does it say is the answer? Jesus is the answer. And in that sense of longing and that desire for right, that desire to be satisfied with right things, the only right thing that can and must satisfy is first of all Jesus. We saw Jesus Reveal this in the Old Testament. Jesus being the word of God. When the people of God came out of Egypt and Moses led them in the wilderness, they hungered. And God gave them manna from heaven. They had no other source or supply. And yet God was their supply and provided them bread from heaven. And Jesus said this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, we need that bread that comes from God like the children of Israel in the wilderness needed a supply that they could not find for themselves. And that speaks of Jesus. We recognize that whilst they were also in the wilderness, there were occasions without water. And God spoke to Moses and, and told him to strike the rock. Moses misrepresented God and struck the rock twice. God wasn't pleased with that. He only told Moses to strike the rock once. Moses struck the rock twice in, a, in an outburst of anger and frustration and that misrepresented God because God is slow to anger. And yet from that rock came water that quenched their thirst. Jesus is that rock that says that followed the children of Israel in the wilderness. And so we must first come to Christ. We must first recognize that 
He is the true source of satisfaction. In Nehemiah, we see the consequence of rejecting Christ. <clears throat> you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. It is possible to know Jesus is the bread of life, the source of real satisfaction, that Jesus is the water that comes from the rock, the one who quenches our soul's thirst. It is possible to know this and yet still resist him in unbelief. You see, the, the sin of the people in the book of Numbers that Nehemiah is commenting on is the fact that they would not trust God. They walked in unbelief. They would not embrace and submit themselves to the Lord in complete trust. Rather, like Adam and Eve in the garden, they wanted to take matters into their own hands and provide for themselves and do for themselves what they couldn't even do. In the garden, Adam and Eve, they saw the fruit that they were told not to eat. The fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they saw that it was pleasing to the eyes and good for food and able to make one wise. You know, when you're looking at your diet and you're thinking, is, is this going to have the right health benefits for me and we're, we're counting the calories and we're looking at how much sugar's in it and how much potassium and how much salt is in it and and they looked at it and they weighed up the health benefits mm. it looks good tasty put it on the gram everybody's putting their food on Instagram I don't know why do we do this I don't know I done it one time and I thought to myself what am I doing They looked at it and they said, it looks good. And it looks satisfying. It's good for food. And you know what? It's going gonna, it's gonna to improve our health. It's going to make us wise. And so they decided to eat of it. And they weren't meant to. And that didn't deny the fact that it was all of those things that they said it was. It just wasn't for them. And so often, we find ourselves challenged with the same dilemma. We see things that in and of themselves seem very good. They look good and they're going to really benefit us. But it's not for us. It's important that we reject that which isn't for us and embrace that which is. And that's Jesus Christ. Because there's something else that's never satisfied. Along with the eyes of man. Something else that's never satisfied. Sheol. Abaddon. That's hell. And the place of destruction are never satisfied. 
Another proverb says that hell enlarges, it expands itself to receive the dead. The devil's always got room for another one in hell. And if anyone resists and rejects Christ, that is where we will find our place. Jesus said that hell wasn't made for man, but for the devil and his angels. And yet, if we reject Christ, we are choosing to take up our part with the devil and his angels in hell. It's interesting how in this proverb it says that hell, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. And never satisfied are the eyes of man. Look at that. How those two sentiments are put together. Communicating this sense of we always want things. We always want stuff. Pursuing those things that will lead us to hell. The Lord says, repent. We are not righteous by ourselves. And God is right to judge our unrighteousness. But if our unrighteousness, Romans 3, 5 and 6, 5 to 6. If our unrighteousness serve to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The fact that we're unrighteous only highlights the fact that God is so righteous, that he is so good. And yet we still complain when God executes judgment, right? People, even, even people who profess to be Christians complain at the idea of there being an eternal judgment. Oh, that sounds like cosmic child abuse. God poured his his judgment on Jesus and so that anyone who dies in their sin wouldn't have to. No, let's just rewrite the story. Everyone wins in the end. Everyone gets released from hell and experiences. No, that's not what the Bible says. And God is just and he is holy and he is right to judge. God is not unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Paul says, I speak in a human way. What more can I say? I'm a man. And from a human point of view, it makes complete sense. God is righteous. We're unrighteous. And he must judge unrighteousness. And so it's not unrighteous for God to inflict wrath on us. He says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? And so may we come to God to receive his deep satisfaction. The problem is that we, we're sieged. We're surrounded by a culture that seeks to cut off the supply of God's bread and water from heaven. I had to look this word up. I couldn't remember the word. I remember the, the concept and the principle. I couldn't remember the word. When a city is being attacked by a, 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 an opposing force, one of the first things they would do is they will 
lay that city under siege. That town, or you would even see police officers do this when they're, they've got somebody maybe in a hostage situation and they're trying to get them to surrender. And they'll just cut off supplies to the property that they're in. Cut off all the utilities, cut off the water, cut off the electric, cut off the gas. They're only going to survive so long in there like that. And we're, we're besieged by Satan. He has a military operation in which as our enemy, he surrounds us trying to cut off the essential supplies. You know when you just, you're just not feeling reading the Bible. I mean, it's a struggle to get out of your bed and go to church. You ain't trying to message no brethren from among the believers because oh, they're not even on the same page as me. No appetite for godly music. Just give me that one extra. Or whatever your Spotify playlist of choices. And we succumb to these distractions which lay siege to our soul. All the while cutting off the supply of God's word. Decreasing our appetite for the Lord. Negating our hunger and thirst for righteousness in our lives and in the lives of our families and in the lives of our, of, of, of our church and in the lives of our community. And we just don't care. We're just whatever. And so how can we break this siege and hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's interesting because the first thing, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it would be the first thing. The first thing is to recognize that we're already hungry and that we're already thirsty. It's just a matter of where we're looking to for satisfaction. Everyone is hungry. Everyone is thirsty. It's just looking in the right place for satisfaction. It is then receiving Christ's righteousness, which he places upon us like a new set of clothes, taking away our filthy clothes of unrighteousness, that righteousness that he purchased by his blood, having lived a completely righteous life. We then have to develop an appetite where we have none. And sometimes if we want to develop an appetite for something, we need to fast from others and you might need to cut off your, your media exposure and, and cut off your daily consumption of social media and music and the blogs and you might need to cut those things off in order to begin to allow your, your body to begin to your, your spiritual body, your soul to begin to recalibrate. And then change your diet. And begin to expose yourself. You know that? Vegetables, right? <laughs> I know certain people that they just don't eat vegetables and they won't. 
mentioning no names. We understand that vegetables are a very crucial part of our diet. Pastor Rob enlightened me this week, you know. He said, you see these cruciform vegetables and how they not only enable us to process the vitamins and minerals that we, we, we have in the food that we eat, but it also helps to serve repair our vital organs. Like, really? He said, you know, if you have a damaged kidney, I'm sure it was kidney, he said. He said, if you have a damaged kidney with the right diet, it can repair itself completely. Cruciform vegetables, you know. <laughs> Listen. That's why I love my brother, you know. I'm glad that we're on the same team. Brother could sell snow to an Eskimo. And you never, ever feel like you're being sold. Never. And so there's that sense in which we need to not just change our diet. Sometimes it's changing our company. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, bad company corrupts good living. And so we're keeping company. I mean, you know what it's like? You're trying to eat right and somebody just, every minute they're going to McDonald's. You're going to go to McDonald's? Burger King, get down the chippy. Come, let's go. All right, then we'll go Nando's. <laughs> it's kind of like the, the in-between, isn't it? The half-healthy fast food. Sometimes we've got to change our company because the company we're keeping is only encouraging us to entertain an unhealthy spiritual diet. The last one is, I'm sure... A surprise to you. Evangelize. Huh? How would that equate to developing a hunger and thirst for righteousness? Evangelize. Look at Ephesians 6. This hit me one day. It says, speaking of the armor of God, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And so there's this sense where these different aspects of armor are being equated to different experiences in the Christian life. Shield of faith, breastplate of righteousness. And then it speaks about the shoes being equated to the gospel that provides us not only a sense of readiness and sure-footedness in life, but also shoes, good shoes. And you know what it's like. You know them days when you're at the wedding and you put on the, the nice shoes? But they're just so unpractical, they're so uncomfortable, and you can only wear them for so long because you need to get your flats on or put on your trainers because they're squeezing and hurting up your foot. Can't make no progress. They're just for show. Can't wait to kick them off and put on some practical shoes where you can progress in. That's the gospel. The gospel are those practical shoes that we put on and we progress in. And when you look at the illusion that's being given as it relates to Scripture and Isaiah and so on, and it's talking about blessed are those with beautiful feet who carry the good news of the gospel. Those who are not just using the gospel for their own progress, but are bringing the gospel to others for their progress. That's the exercise of the Christian life. 
Are you being a witness? Are you, are you taking opportunity to get out and share your faith, even if it's just passing out tracts? Yeah, I'm not an evangelist. No, but you're called to be a witness. Every single one of us are. And so even if you feel uncertain in that, there's opportunity to come around brethren who are about that and be encouraged and access resources. There's great resources there to online and everything that's going to help encourage you in that. But it's about being intentional because good things don't happen by accident. We've got to be intentional. And in that, praise be to God, we will experience that the exercising of our faith, the exercising of our salvation in such ways that will generate an appetite. And it not only will generate, but it will regulate. You know like what it's like, you get into the mode, you start doing some exercise, maybe you're doing a bit of HIIT training in your house, or you go gym, and then after you finish, the last thing you want to eat is some nonsense. Like all this effort and energy that I've invested in, and I feel good for it, I'm not going to just go and put some Doritos in my face after that. I want to I wanna put in something healthy. And when we've been spiritually exercising in evangelism, it causes our ap appetite to be regulated. We're not going to be quick to watch soaps and Netflix binges and da-da-da-da-da-da. We're just like, you know what? I want to be able to go back out and, and be even more effective in my evangelism. I got braced up with some questions and I was just scratching my head and I'm thinking, hey, how, how am I going to respond to this? Let me go and look into it. Let me feed on something that's going to help me be able to exercise more efficient and effectively as I'm sharing my faith. Amen? You get the picture? And so you have, you feel like, oh, Christianity is boring, man. You just feel like I'm just sitting here waiting for Jesus to come. What do I do with myself? It's boring. Let me just go back into the world and start raving with the... Uh, Looking in the wrong direction. Satisfaction ain't found over there. Give yourself more to the things of God. Find someone and start discipling them. Listen. That's when you start to know some spiritual vitality and energy in your body. And the beauty of it is this. <laughs> and it, 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 look, here's the challenge, right? You'd think that, well, that means, therefore, that when you're in Christ and you're really functioning and flexing in the, in the spirit of the Lord and you're walking with Jesus, and you're, you're always going to be satisfied. Hmm. Really? You see, we see there is a satisfaction paradox in the statement. That as believers, we find ourselves satisfied with an unsatisfied satisfaction. Jesus said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Hmm. So when I'm satisfied, do I then stop hungering and thirsting? Surely if I stop hungering and thirsting, then there will be nothing more with which to satisfy me. So there is a sense in which the satisfaction leads to more hungering and thirsting. And the more I hunger and thirst, the more I'll be satisfied. And the more I'm satisfied, the more I hunger and thirst. And then... The cycle continues. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones said it like this. The Christian is one who at one and the same time is hungering and thirsting and yet he is filled. And the more he is filled, the more he hungers and thirsts. That is the blessedness of the Christian life. It goes on. You see, the reality is that we will spend eternity hungering and thirsting after God. Whilst at the same time being satisfied. Whilst at the same time hungering for more. You know, when you just have a good time and you're just like, oh, I just want more of it. And then you get more of it and you're just like, oh, my word, it's so wonderful. And I just want more. That's going to be our experience in eternity with God. The greatest elation, the greatest pleasure, every desire fulfilled and yet stimulated at the same time. It's amazing. I'm going to invite the team to come back. And so what's what's your situation today? Are you trying to satisfy yourself? As Jeremiah said to the people of God, with broken cisterns, with burst pipes, you're trying to get living water from a tap that's got a leak underground and you're just getting little drips and you're not really being satisfied at all finding that even as you experience the finer things in life they're unsatisfactory You see, we're made for more. We are made for more. We are made to eat, to drink, and to be merry, but not on the things of this world, but to eat, to feed on Christ, the bread of life, and to to drink of him and his spirit, who is living water. That we might experience, and not just experience, but that righteousness might flow from us and through us in ways that satisfy us and yet leave us yearning for more of that genuine satisfaction. Are you in a place today where you just feel unsatisfied in life? You feel unsatisfied in your relationship with God? The Lord has more. The psalmist said in Psalm 42 verse 7 that deep calls unto deep. And there's this sense of there is a deep longing in me that I experience when I look at the depth of God's greatness and I just long even more. And yet God invites us to be overwhelmed in him. 
again and again and again and again. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. You see, that sense of dissatisfaction isn't just down to, oh, you know, they don't preach right at church. That sense of dissatisfaction isn't just down to, oh, don't have a Bible study that I can connect with. Those things might help, but there is so much more and it's, it's about us just being honest with ourselves and being honest with God in terms of where we're at. I feel as though there are so many of us who we live in this place where we don't long for the things of God and we don't long for more in terms of just experiencing God and walking with Jesus. We've settled and we've just become content with the status quo. But there is more. And, it's, and, it, and it, it doesn't have to translate into this kind of freaky Friday, you know, having chills and shivers and so on and so on and so forth. They may be experiences that we legitimately have, but that's not the place where we live. But there is a place that we can live where we're experiencing a satisfying of the Lord while still longing, but longing for more of him and not things of the world. There's a need for us to stir up our hearts because the, the water of God has, has become like a dripping pool rather than a running stream such that it's, 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 it's almost stagnating. That's what happens to still water. It stagnates. John chapter 7, the Lord Jesus said, and living waters will rise up within you and flow out of you like streams. Are you hungry for that? Are you hungry to see God manifest in your life? To see the reality of God's righteousness revealed through you? In your life, in your situation? I had a conversation with Mel last week and just a brief conversation just set my soul on fire and she just shared this testimony with me, of me, with me of this lady who was going to an airport and she, she happened to, it was an internal flight and she needed her passport and left a ticket and a, a ticket was paid for but she didn't have it and she left them at home and being an internal flight, it wasn't an international flight, she was just like, okay, well let, let me go and see if I can get on board and I'm going to do this complete injustice, but you're going to get the idea. And she goes and they're like, oh, no, you know what? We can't let you on, but is there someone who can vouch for you? And she's just thinking, who do I, who do I call to vouch for me? And so she just ends up saying, look, can you get the phone book? Open the phone book. Put the first person that you, um, you, you choose, just call them. This is true, true stories, yeah? So the person sees this name, calls them, the person that, um, is on the other end of the phone who picks up the phone happens to be a reverend. And 
So he says, okay, no problem. I'll come down and vouch for this lady. This lady was a missionary. And this reverend comes down and he's like, yeah, I, I can vouch for this lady. Because basically, her ministry had affected him. I think he had read her book or something like that in such a way that it had propelled him in ministry. And even though it was the first person in the book who seemed completely random, without hesitation, as he heard the name, he went and he was able to vouch for this lady. What a work of God. And yet she had the faith to just put the challenge on the table, call someone. She trusted the Lord. Now, it may not have happened. But that's why it's faith. It's a faith step. We step out in the Lord and we trust him. And we say, Lord, your will be done. And whatever the outcome, you're good. To what extent do we step out in faith anymore? To what extent do we want to control all of the parameters and rationalize all of the different strategies before we feel confident to step out and trust the Lord? There is an adventure to be experienced in our relationship with God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. You're invested, Lord, fully committed to us, invested in us. Lord, we thank you that truly, as we open ourselves to you, as we divert our attention from all those things in life that, that siege our minds, that siege our hearts, trying to cut us off from your supply, from the supply of you, as we look up and look to you, the author and finisher of our faith, we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to supply our need. You are faithful to satisfy us. And that process may not happen immediately. It may not happen overnight. But that is the challenge that you put before us to persist, to persist, to press on, to persevere. Hungry people look for food wherever they can find it. And Lord, I just pray that you would stimulate us, Lord, as we respond to you and stir in our hearts before you, crying out to you, Lord, and saying, Lord, please, take away this diet of success, survival, status, wealth, relationship, just want to be married or whatever the case is, Lord. Just want to have a, Lord, let, let our relationship with you not be built on just wanna. But Lord, let's recognize who you are and what you have done. How you have invested yourself in us. What you have provided for us already in Christ. And may we sit at your table and feast. Feast on your righteousness and your goodness. Help us, Lord. Amen.
Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.